the attitude of both reinsurers and carriers in general as it relates to the gig economy is overall pretty negative. And what we had realized is we sort of saw and understood all the reasons why, and we had to build a platform to solve all the various problems that would need to be addressed in order to successfully not just service market, but actually have a commercially viable business. Welcome to MGA Founders Podcast with Socotra CEO, Dan Woods. Tune in each episode to hear Dan chat with innovative MGA founders to learn their stories, their challenges, and their visions. And now our host, Dan Woods. Marty Young and Dustin Walsley are the founders of Buckle, the inclusive digital financial services platform serving the rising middle class and providers to the gig economy. All right, Dustin, Marty, great to have you here. Thank you for having us. Dustin, I think this is our first time meeting. Marty, I know we connected up in, um, we were in Jersey, just across from the island. When was that? A couple months ago, I met you and a colleague, and you laid it all out. You guys are doing some amazing things. Oh, thank you. We have a lot going on, but I'm glad you're able to meet Dustin. Indeed. Um, so let's see here. And of course, I was looking around. One fun item, I saw that the uh, NASDAQ building completely painted that corner section with buckle stuff all over. So um, a little curious for the listeners here. So what what was up with that? That was pretty cool. So the um, uh, NASDAQ uh, owns a company that is a vendor to us for some of our um, complex uh uh, capital structure uh, management. Um, yeah. And uh, when the team was visiting them, um, they put that up because we had just raised our Series B round. Um, you know, one to celebrate, you know, the success doing that and the second that I'm hoping we'll be back uh, and at some point on the NASDAQ yep. exchange. So very exciting stuff. All right. Get that bell ringing arm. Good to go. Um, well, if they're already looking to you, um, trying to coerce you to the, the the right market, then that's a pretty good sign. Yeah, it's a good sign. And then also, uh, I see that you're recognized, um, as are we, at the, the InsureTech 50 by CB Insights, which is um, pretty cool of them to do that. I know we've been following CB Insights for a while, and uh, that was a neat one. Yeah, no, they're very uh, well-respected by um, uh, corporates, investors, uh, thought leaders, uh, academics. They do good stuff. So it's great list that we're both on. So let's see here. Well, I said back in the introduction a little bit about uh, what it is Buckle does, uh, but there's a lot there to unpack. Uh, we're talking, of course, about the gig economy, and I'm wondering if um, either of you could just jump in on what was the initial ethos behind Buckle? What was the thing that needed to exist around the gig economy and at a high level? How did you see it being addressed by insurance and by yourselves? Maybe I'll take that one, Marty, because it, it started um, in you know the mid you know 2010, so call it you know 13, 14, where Uber started in the game and it was all Uber Black. And to refresh everybody's memory, Uber Black was limousines and black cars, and there was insurance coverage. 
So one day I started insuring most of these Uber drivers in in Georgia and uh, got to know the people at Uber and learned that they were rolling out a product called UberX. And UberX is when anybody, any persons could use their car, sign up for Uber and drive people around. And that was the beginning of the idea of Buckle because at the time, there was not an insurance product around to cover this driver. And it created a coverage gap that I identified and reached out to an old friend of mine, Marty, and started talking about it. And he was seeing some si- some of this side on the, uh, uh, on the claim side with some of the work that he was doing. And identifying this coverage gap became the idea of buckles. How do we ensure these drivers, which would grow to the broader gig economy in a more effective way? And I think that's a critical piece to everything in Buckle is how do we fill up, you know, fill in these gaps in coverage that the uh, the drivers face. So um, at the onset, what were these UberX drivers doing? You know, that's a good question. I mean, was it legal? Know, la- <laughs> I, I, I don't want to use that term. How about they just were not telling their insurance companies how they were using their vehicles to drive? And because of that, it, it, it created a challenge. And being an insurance agent at the time, when a driver came to me and told me that they were driving or using their car for livery, I had to fill that out on the insurance application. And that created the challenge I had is I couldn't represent to the insurance companies that I was representing that these drivers were, in fact, just using their car for personal auto. They were using them in a commercial fashion, and that became the challenge. Hmm. Then in that case, do the um, traditional insurers, do they simply raise the rates, move them to another category, or do they just drop coverage? They don't want to touch it. I mean, every insurance company is different. Every insurance contract or declaration page that stipulates the terms of mm-hmm. uh, of use are, are different. But generally speaking, uh, back in the day, that coverage was completely excluded. Um, mm-hmm. You know, years have passed, and some of the carriers have adopted endorsements where there's limited coverage that is provided. Um, and today a lot of the coverage gets left or pushed on to the dispatch companies, Uber, Lyft, and DoorDash. Um, sometimes it gets left behind in the, uh, uninsured motorist market or the, you know, all the other markets up there where it's, it's just unknown. So there, there's a lot of challenges depending on the insurance that the actual driver has in place. But what we're trying to do is create a very clean, easy to understand policy that covers uh, the drivers, the general public, um, and the delivery and TNC companies correctly. Hmm. Then how long after the launch of uh, UberX did you guys determine this is going to be big, we need to do this? And then how'd you go from that to how'd you find each other? And, uh, Tell us how you got started and decide this is the thing you're going to do. So I, I had the idea, and uh, I'd been in business with Marty for years. Uh, I met him in, in the late 1990s, and I, I called him, and he was doing some uh, some consulting work for some of the uh, the large standard insurance companies. I'm like, listen, there's this real problem that we need to close this gap. And he literally gets on an airplane within days and flies down, and I'll let him pick up the story from here, but sees the same problem on his side especially uh, in the claims departments. Yeah. Yeah, so I think um, when you think about sort of Uber in the early days, um, 
you know, the taxi limo experience was sort of horrible. Um, every now and then, um, you know, you would get, you know, a taxi in New York City or Chicago. Um, maybe you'd get a taxi from a major airport like Atlanta or Dallas. Um, you try to order a limo. Uh, it was just, it was just hard, um, to basically, you know, arrange that kind of local transportation. Um, so when Uber came, you know, they sort of solved that problem, making it easier to arrange local transportation, easier to make it, uh, for business travelers to get to and from airports, mm-hmm. um, as well as get around town. But something extraordinary happened. And if, if you look at the, um, the founder, of Uber and what the inspiration was for Uber in the first place. He, he once remarked, you know, he would, you know, go and look at any shopping mall, right? And you would see lots and lots of cars parked outside the shopping mall sitting around doing nothing. And the average car spends 23, 23 and a half hours a day doing nothing. And the, the insight he had was that there's a way where people could share those cars and maybe, um, you know, leverage those vehicles so that we need less cars and you could have, um, a democratization of labor where people could give each other rides. Uh, that, that would probably unlock a lot of value. And I think what amazed us about rideshare was they opened up markets that just simply didn't exist. And the, the idea that people would take an Uber or Lyft, um, you know, you know, after, you know, you know, um, you know, in, in, instead of driving to a bar at night, just taking an Uber and Lyft to and from, um, you know, taking an Uber and Lyft to a local concert because you just didn't want to deal with parking, uh, to, you know, maybe forego a car altogether in certain markets. Um, knowing you can walk to certain places and if you really need a ride, you, you pull in an Uber and Lyft. The, the category just exploded. And then I think a lot of the academics started looking at it and realizing that there are a lot of underutilized assets, not just cars, which can also be used for delivery. There's all sorts of things. Like I think one of the studies I saw is the average household owns four drills, four electric drills. And you, you kind of laugh about that, but you realize that, hey, instead of having four drills, if there's a more efficient way of organizing uh, labor and assets uh, in order to um, uh, to reduce costs to improve utilizations to basically open up new markets of convenience well that 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 is really true value creation so we realized that uh, uber was really the opening of a Pandora's box that will still have uh, years and years of growth coming. Um, not just in rideshare, but now we're seeing delivery much bigger than rideshare. We think all the other things that are coming beyond delivery are going to be bigger than delivery as a whole. So we're hmm. early days of a transformation of basically how people, um, you know, think about, uh, uh, you know, the delivery of, of services, whether a ride, um, a delivery of a package or food or, or even some sort of personal service. For early days. So this is going to be much, much bigger when you sort of look at it in total than what you see today. Okay. You said something there that had me really curious. You're talking about rideshare beyond moving people and moving goods. What else is there to move? Well, people to deliver services. Um, 
And we're seeing it now. We're seeing people doing dog walking on dispatch. Ah, I see. Doing notary services on dispatch. Uh, People coming in and cleaning your house on dispatch. People um, coming in and and cooking, you know, uh, two weeks worth of meals in your kitchen on dispatch. Locksmiths on dispatch. We're early days. And, And really, when you think about it, these and if you talk to your uber or lyft driver you're going to find that they do all sorts of things on average um hmm. you know we, this, the data we've collected and the studies we've done we found all sorts of things that people do i mean they're actors or musicians or photographers or notaries they're insurance agents there's all sorts of stuff going on in the ecosystem where all these folks can essentially do their job via a phone app it's really amazing yeah well, for the musicians, um, I'm in Austin now, and you can't get three Uber rides without one of them saying, check out my band, which is kind of fun. <laughs> Mode of discovery. Because they were they have gigs. Well, they have, it be, gigs. They have gigs. That's the gig economy right there. The oh, that's, that's yeah. I guess, the one of the original gig economies. Yeah, yeah. Well, it beats the heck out of riding with a notary, I suppose. <laughs> Depends on what you need. I think I'll take that. Depends on what you need, I suppose. Conversation's a little more fun. Then... All right. So you, you kind of got started with that. Of course, start with an MGA. You had to find um, if carriers are reluctant to insure these kinds of drivers, how did they feel about providing capacity to an MGA, which is, you know, as you started out, obviously, you've grown a bit from um, from there. We'll talk about that more, but you know, early days. So the, the early days, uh, which is not that long ago, five years ago, I think you saw a number of entrants. Uh, you saw a uh, slice labs probably the first big entrant into the market. Uh, You saw a number of the major insurers, uh, Farmers, uh, Geico, um, you know, um, others kind of run into the market um, because it was this very rapidly, rapidly growing market. And a number of insurance companies, both incumbents as well as startups, were trying to figure out how do we capture this large and growing market? Um, on the corporate side, you saw James River. Uh, and if you look at it closely, you saw some of the same analogies going on in the credit markets as well. So you saw Fair, Uber Exchange, GetAround, Maven, a whole bunch of folks running in the market. And the, the experience overall has been absolutely terrible. And um, a number of those incumbents are no longer around. Or they've just sort of left or um, initial entrants or incumbents that entered the market have exited it. And, you know, it's, um, it, it's really sort of evolved to a place where the, um, you know, the, the, the attitude of both reinsurers and carriers in general as it relates to the gig economy is overall pretty negative. And what we had realized is we sort of saw and understood all the reasons why. And we had to build a platform to solve all the various problems that would need to be, um, you know, um, addressed in order to successfully um, not just service market, but actually have a commercially viable business. Okay. And then um, there's been a whole lot of things happening since then. The thing that I remarked most when I met you, um, actually ahead of the our um in-person meeting, I know we've talked some virtually, is uh, Buckle's actually a rather 
kind of a complex organization. You've pulled a lot of things together here. And I'm kind of curious, just the, what's the high level of the story from being an MGA? Of course, you are MGA founders. That's what we're doing here um, mm-hmm. at this podcast. But now you've got carriers, a TPA. Um, are you still operating as an MGA with some external capacity in paper? Um, tell me a story here. Yeah. Maybe the best way to think about it is as as we started as an MGA and evolved into the carrier that we are today, we built everything first to be best in class for ourselves, right? How do we have the best claims organization? How do we have the best technology stack? How do we leverage data as optimally as possible? And then what we realized, which was as we built this from ourselves, is how do we let some of our partners monetize this as well and take advantage of it? So it was built and structured in a very module fashion so that each piece can be used by others as well as us. So while we were the first customer for our B2B solution, we then enabled others to use parts of the platform or the entire platform for that matter and have been uh, rolling that out. So that's how we've been able to really rapidly scale, uh, rapidly um, lower the cost for the entire ecosystem is by monetizing our entire eco- our entire infrastructure for the people that need it. Okay, so like uh, take the carriers for example. You've acquired three carriers. That's correct. Three yeah. Wow. We, we so it makes you walking around with two carriers saying, "You know what I need? I need a third carrier." Like, how does uh... <laughs> so? Um, and then this probably, um, and I understand your audience is MGA, so I'm going to kind of tailor this response for your audience. So why are there MGAs? Why, why, why do they exist? Mm-hmm. And, and the reason MGAs exist is they've been able to figure out a proprietary um, product, proprietary distribution that can segment and match risk to price better than anybody else out there. MGAs work really well when they're focused on niches and they're focused on these segments and they can create um, advantage where maybe larger carriers that are really selling commoditized products can't. And that's why there are so many MGAs. What we realized was that um, doing an MGA ourselves, we identified a niche. We realized that nobody was matching risk to price well. We could figure it out and that um, once we did all that, there were other types of risks that we had to match risk to price that generally MGAs don't think about. Um, MGAs think about matching risk to price in terms of underwriting. Um, MGAs don't understand matching risk to price in terms of regulatory risk, operational risk, um, market risk. And and why do you think that is? Because they're one, they're very complicated. Um, mm-hmm. To understand regulatory risk, you actually have to understand how to run a carrier, and that's not simple. Like you have to understand how carriers operate, or like many MGAs who work with running companies and carriers. Carriers will tell them, "Hey, you got to do this, that, and the other thing, and you need to stop doing that." And that's non-negotiable because we're the carrier, and the regulators are telling us this is the way it's going to be. And then the, you know, the MGA is usually confused and they're not sure why, because they don't understand all the complexities of the carrier. Likewise, when you look at the operational risk, um, also very complicated. The operational risk lives in claims. 
And particularly if you are in the wheels lines of businesses, whether personal or commercial auto, that's a game of scale. That's a game where if you are a 10 or $20 million MGA, you will never have the uh, scale to compete with the larger carriers that do have scale. And because they're able to match risk to price on the operational level, they can beat you in your underwriting, even though you might be better. You're not as good as they are operationally. And that's why MGA struggle, because although they may be better underwriters, they may not have all that mass and scale that underwriting companies that do have mass and scale who may not be as good at underwriting can still beat you. You know, the third piece is market risk. And again, this is also complicated. Um, you know, reinsurers will often tell MGAs, here's the deal. Uh, their brokers will go run a process. The MGA is not quite sure why they got the seating commission they did. They're not sure why they saw a lost quarter. They're not sure why, because they don't understand the market. And they don't really understand how these markets evolve over time. So when you look at the whole value chain from the point of risk to the capital markets, you realize it goes through the MGA, which in theory should be the owner of underwriting risk. It goes through the carrier, which owns the regulatory risk. It goes through a claims agent or TPA that owns the operational risk. And it goes through a reinsurance panel that owns the market risk. And so often MGAs are, are takers um, because they really have no choice because the market is what the market is for, you know, fronting companies, for TPAs and for reinsurance. But the truth of the matter is, if you think about if this is really about matching risk to price, you have to match risk to price across all of these different risk categories. And that's what we did at Buckle. We built a platform where we can match risk to price, not just in underwriting, but also in regulatory claims and, and market. And what you'll realize is it's great to have five or six better points in underwriting. But if you can't make uh, make up uh, the um, the same kinds of de-risking others can do, whether in operations, regulatory, or in the capital markets, you lose. Doesn't matter. So really, the buckle platform was designed because we realized the gig economy, although a big market, exists in hundreds of little segments, and each little segment has got to be underwritten differently. And But the value chain behind it, we have to match risk to price, not just in the underwriting, but in all the other pieces of the value chain. That's why we built what we did. And then um curious, so the, um, the, the multiple carriers, was it, um, was it for more licenses, for more products? Was it providing, um, they come through with a lot of existing, um, premium. How are you thinking no, about that? It's for segmentation. So really the theme is to match risk to price, you have to be able to segment. Um, MGAs are good at finding a single segment and going after that mm -hmm. single segment. But when you look at um, the markets in which we operate primarily, which is primarily non-standard auto, um, you know, um, what you realize is that you, you often need um, different tools in the toolbox 
um, in order to basically segment different groups differently. And often you need more than one carrier in order to do it correctly. So when you look at the larger insurance companies, they have a bunch of carriers. And yeah. if they're doing it right, they've segmented different types of risk into different types of carriers. Um, for example, in Texas alone, where you call home, there are 60 MGAs running around, 6-0. Mm. Why are there 60 MGAs riding around? Because that's how segmented the market is. And that doesn't include the big programs running through Progressive, Geico, yeah. State Farm. And we've got five of them, I believe, but off the top of my head. Um, we're running we're running two MGAs in Texas right now. But okay. if you in theory, if you wanted to um, run uh, a credit, a non-credit, um, a telematics program through a single carrier in Texas, you can do that. But now if you want two credit-based programs, you now need a second carrier. If you want three credit programs, you now need a third carrier. Ah, uh, okay. And then um, again, regarding the relationship between carriers and MGAs, you start with MGA, you acquire carriers, and now full circle using those carriers to partner with MGAs again. So um curious how that works and how you're interacting with MGAs and what sorts of folks you're looking for. So I'll, I'll frame something, then I'm going to hand it over to Dustin. And this mm -hmm. is important. We are laser focused on the gig economy. Vehicles that um, are used for both personal as well as commercial use. And we tell all of our MGA partners, we intend to own the whole value chain soup to nuts. But we have no intention of directly competing in the world of personal auto or in the world of commercial auto. Dustin? Mm -hmm. Yeah, but specific to you know, our MGA partners as well as future partners, we're looking and trying to partner with solid operators with you know either established books of business or really strong business plans that are focused on a segment you know wheels based um, that is looking for a partner that helps de-risk, as Marty would say, you know the rest of the value chain, right? That needs claims help, that needs paper. That needs those components where we enable the MGA to be very light and very focused on distribution and underwriting so that they can be really good at what MGAs are traditionally good at and be the best at that. And then they can offload the rest to us um, and, and make the economics work because it is there in, in the insurance industry and in this space, which is a commodity, margins are very tight. So how do we manage that as, as best as possible? All right. So if someone's watching us here and they're an mga and they are thinking about ride share or they're already doing ride share um what profile means they should um, pick up the phone and call you or write in it, it's more not that they're doing ride share it's more if they're in personal lines auto right or they're in commercial lines wow. auto i you see know? i see so, so you yourselves are fo laser focused right but our partner jay's you partner with Okay. Yeah, they're focused on, for example, we have one that's focused on, um, you know, South Florida. We have another one that's focused on primarily um, California and um, and uh, and Chicago uh, taxi limo, but, but they do other states as Got well. It. MGAs tend to be very niche, and it. again, Got we tell them we're not, we 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 welcome partners that want to go into and get a piece of the you know the 200 250 billion dollar um personal lines market automotive it's great it's that's not what 
we are focused on. We're focused on basically about 3% of that market. Um, but the other 97%, we love the idea of having partners. Got it. Got it. Well, thanks for correcting me on that. I took your laser focus a little too literally. And then that also explains something else I was thinking about, which is what keeps you from competing with your partners. And that explains it right there. Is We're gig. The focus. We're gig. And exactly. Okay. All right. Very cool. Um, and, because on the, we, yeah. and because we take risk with, with our MGA partners, we'll, we'll arrange the whole reinsurance panel. We'll take care of all the reinsurance. So we take risk. I can assure you, we do not want to compete with our MGA partners. That that's uh, that's like a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Now we yeah. we are we're taking risk and we're we're not um, we're not interested in anything other than their tremendous success. Okay, and then uh, you mentioned having a, a TPA, I believe. Um, yes. Is that available to them? How do, how does that interaction work? Yeah, just as as I mentioned a, f- a few minutes ago, every piece of our infrastructure is available to our MGA partners for a fee, right? And when our TPA gets involved that specializes in this risk class, right, wheels, and that's what we're focused on, um, we're able to achieve you know amazing operational results. So we allow our MGA partners to leverage our TPA services. Okay. Then back to um, Marty, you were talking about a lot of the things that you see MGAs don't realize at the onset. And um, that begs the question, what advice do you have for them? Um, Partner somebody like Socotra, um, who actually (laughs) understands how to get an MGA up and running, uh, can make the technology uh, less of a problem, get the integrations done. And I think if if you have that um, then, you know, and you've got a solid plan to really focus on a segment of, of the market that you think you can do better than the big guys. Um, I don't think you even need to be the, put the best, um, in the world at what you do, but you have to be focused on, Hey, I'm, I, for example, we love, we love the stories, not of, Hey, I can deliver you, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, Ten billion dollar Georgia personal lines auto market that 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 we know is not possible. But what we love to hear is the story of, hey, there's this niche in Georgia. It's about forty million dollars. I think I can get twenty million of it, and the big guys can't touch it. And mm-hmm. here's my story. We love to hear those kinds of stories. Mm-hmm. For stories like that, how often do they resemble? I'm- I mean, all the all, all the press goes to the cool insure tech MGAs that raise venture money. We come to yeah. the same conferences and so forth, and you and I see each other. But um, the kinds of people are going to say, "I want to go after you know low end you know, retirement community mobile homes in Arizona, yeah. like something like that." Are you seeing? I'm going to guess that's a different demographic of of person it's who very, runs that very, kind of MGA. Very entrepreneurial. I'm going to let Dustin, but. I'm I'm amazed. Like we have some MGA partners with, you know, like they have like ten people and they're writing twenty or thirty million dollars of business. Um, that's pretty good, you mm. know. When you're getting all the MGA fees on yeah. twenty or thirty million dollars, you have less than ten people. That's pretty good. So the the issue isn't, I think, the more the insure tech way, which is give me this big pile of money, let me go invest and build out a lot of stuff. It's more that well, I really see this opportunity. I can move fast. I can be nimble. I can go grab it when nobody else is paying attention. And then once you grab it, I mean, it becomes an annuity. 
Dustin? And there's, you know, a, a million examples of where these really small and mid-sized businesses, five to 20 people are able to build out these ex- incredible companies that are for MGAs that are extremely difficult to uh, compete with, that they get entrenched in the market, that are able, as Marty said, to create these incredible annuities, mailbox monies that can grow for generations. Because people in these niche markets become very loyal to their agents or their distribution partners uh, to the extent that um, they become household names in these small communities, right? And they're sponsoring, you know, baseball, you know, local baseball games mm-hmm. from at the local high school or the football games and things of that nature. And they're extremely, you know, successful with all the, uh, the challenges of, you know, raising this huge amount of outside capital, competing against or trying to compete against massive incumbents that have been around forever, that have real balance sheets. Um, and it's it's just an incredible business and it can be an incredible lifestyle for people. So we like to give them a platform that they can make this all happen. Yeah. One thing I love in what I'm hearing there. So, I mean, I live in Texas now, grew up in Minnesota, in between lived in California for a good long time. And I found living in the San Francisco Bay Area, people think entrepreneur equals venture-backed startup founder. And that overlooks the whole rest of the country where entrepreneurs are doing all sorts of things on, you know, maybe a bank loan or um, just oh, well, out of Yeah, the well, I mean, was it saying like, that most that's millionaires the, that's have the a- entrepreneurs. That's 99% of the country's entrepreneurs look like that. Yeah. They drive, they drive like a like Ford F one. They drive a Ford F one fifty or something like that, right? And like they're exactly. contractors, and they're all the jobs that we don't think about because they're the infrastructure of this country yeah. that makes the whole country go. Yeah, because we're all reading TechCrunch <laughs> and going to these you know, these these tech conferences and stuff while they're getting work done. <laughs> yeah, um, it's very true. Yeah. One thing, if I could say, Dan, I mean, what you guys have built at Sakocha is amazing. You're, I know you're still building away. Uh, we've built something as well. I, I, I think, I, I think what I would simply comment on is, you know, I think the the insure techs that are solving real problems mm-hmm. with real capability are going to serve a lot of what I think is most of the insurance ecosystem, which is very entrepreneurial, very, very mm-hmm. entrepreneurial. And if, if you can kind of put the tools in the hands of these, um, entrepreneurial, yeah. um, MGAs or, you know, new mm-hmm. MGAs, I mean, I've, I've just seen, uh, the, the speed at which they can build robust businesses. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, also just, they may know a whole lot about insurance and at least as importantly, know a whole lot about their own community and market and their niche. And they should be able to do very, very successful things without having to also happen to know about venture capital and cap tables and boards and like all of that stuff that you not get caught up in. There should be no reason they should have to understand all that stuff. As well as regulatory risk, operational risk, market risk. Oh, let's be honest. Most of the insured tech founders don't know regulatory risk or operational risk either (laughs) when they get started. Fair enough. But these small MGAs, all they have to be really focused on is what they're great at, distribution. And underwriting and segmenting their customer and communicating with them and renewing those customers and keeping them on the books for not one renewal, but not two renewals, but for years. Yeah. No, very cool. Um, bring it back to rideshare for a moment because that's always a popular topic as it's, I mean, it's growing so much. A lot of us use it every day and um, it's, it's, 
people are wondering about the future of it. Um, where you've been operating for a few years, you've seen some really interesting times because you saw life as normal, then you saw lockdown, and now you're seeing some new economic factors. I wonder if you could walk us through what the journey of rideshare has been over the last three years as just maybe i'll give it to the new economic factors but and then i'll hand it to marty we started the world with just uber and lyft right and that was the world we all lived in and Mm -hmm. great right it was better cheaper faster to move around you know on a friday night from the airport to your destination don't need to rent a car any longer then COVID comes and it basically eliminates all Uber and Lyft rides. But all of a sudden, fast forward, delivery explodes. And not just for food, but for also packages. And it explodes in such a fashion, not that just the new and early adopters take hold, but my parents and all of our parents are using it. And people that you had never thought would be in a delivery demographic all of a sudden have these new habits. So delivery becomes, you know, 10, 20, 100 fold what, you know, delivery or, you know, the Ubers and Lyfts will be. Then the world comes back to normal and now Uber and Lyft start taking off. We have a driver supply. So all of a sudden there's this huge demand for all these drivers and there's not drivers going on. And now fast forward to today and there's new economic inflation and then I'll hand it to Marty that's changing the market again. Yeah, Marty, what are you seeing? Yeah, Roger, it was incredibly exciting. You know, uh, Uber was the first company, I think, to go from zero to $50 billion in, um, because they weren't sure how to record revenue, but they record revenue basically in the fares taking, but they went from zero to $50 billion in like six years. Like nobody, nobody did that. Google didn't even do that. Hmm. Um, just the speed of which it exploded. And, um, you know, cause, um, but, but what's happened to Dustin's point, is that delivery has eclipsed rideshare. Delivery mm-hmm. is now much, much bigger than rideshare. In fact, in, in your neck of the woods down in Austin, Texas, uh, we have delivery drivers making over $100,000 a year right now. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the reality is that, um, particularly given the economic uh, issues that are going on, you know, a lot of folks are downsizing the number of cars they have per household. Uh, pretty much you're watching the big corporates getting into this game again, near neck of the woods. I think HEB pretty big mm-hmm. and one of our partners. Yep. Um, you know, they're doing a lot of deliveries and a lot of HEB customers would rather, you know, get a delivery once a week, uh, than uh, maybe go into the store. So, you know, delivery is going to be, I think, um, will continue to be not just bigger than rideshare. In some areas, we think it's five to six times bigger than rideshare right now, just in terms of miles driven. Oh, wow. Um, but um, what's coming next after delivery is all the other, quote, services that can be delivered to your house. And it won't be a single thing. There'll be dozens of different things that could be delivered to your house. And that's going to be even bigger. Yeah. Interesting. Then is it even predictable what the upper end is to all of this? I think it's, yeah, I think we think it's more of a, a re, um, a reorganization of, of what I'll call the U.S. workforce. You know, mm-hmm. we're, we're very U.S. centric, but, um, you know, in 2019, over 50 million Americans reported some sort of side hustle income on their W-2 statement. 
And a lot of that is not Uber and Lyft. Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, Grubhub, um, all those are only like 10% of what's going on there. There's still another 45 million people doing things on the side, whether you know, they're teaching music a notary. or a notary or a wedding photographer, or maybe they just do odd jobs or, or, mm. or whatever. That's a lot of people. In the next decade, um, I think you'll see that number go up, up, up and up. It could be, you know, half the U.S. workforce should be roughly about 75, 80 million people. And to basically make those systems of how those services are delivered more efficient, that'll be done by a, uh, app over mm -hmm. time. And you're seeing it, you're just seeing it evolve right now. Things like Fiverr, et cetera, et cetera. Wow. What we've realized is the right entry point was really ensuring those automobiles. Got it. And people will need cars to get to places. And rideshare delivery was a set of hard problems that we had to solve first. But we can always solve um, the problem of, okay, now once you get to that destination for that commercial service you're about to deliver and you walk out of the car, there will be things we'll be able to do to support um, the, those not just cars 24-7, but eventually there's people 24 seven as well. Got it. So when you look at TaskRabbit, what you see is kind of the blunt first implementation. You see a Palm Pilot. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think TaskRabbit is is, uh, is 1.0. We're, we're yeah. early days. It's amazing. Early days. Well, as you wrap it up, the um, only thing I want to ask is give you, you know, give you the floor for just a moment. Um, to ask you, um, is there anything you look, I mean, you're looking for MGAs, you described what those look like. Are there any other partners you're looking for? Um, key folks you're looking to hire? Hey, we're always looking for engineers, everyone, um, certainly. Um, what kind of person out there listening should contact you and how do they find you? So I'll, I'll go first, but, um, you know, I, actually for engineers, we're, we're in a pretty good spot. And, and, and part of the reason is, and, and Dan, hopefully you can appreciate this. Hmm. We don't intend to compete with the Socotras of the world, period, full stop. We, we want to partner with people, use their best in class systems, plug them into the buckle infrastructure. So although we have, you know, a technology team, we're really interested in really having a partnering approach. Mm -hmm. Um, but, um, in terms of people we're looking for, um, we're always looking for good claims people. Um, we're, we, we keep growing and growing and you need more and more claims people, um, at all levels and including all levels of specialization within claims. And then folks that know how to work with MGAs and work with reinsurers, we're always in the hunt for those folks as well. Um, there are other roles that we're looking to, you know, fill, but, you know, yeah. I think one thing you'll find about us is we have a lot of really deep insurance leadership, um, at Buckle. And it's a great place to, to basically see, you know, how, how we think the future of insurance as a whole is going to work um, beyond just the gig economy, but just how the whole thing works. But um, yeah, MGAs, people who know how to work with MGAs. And Geographies? Uh, I think anywhere in the United States. Great. Dustin, anything to add? Take us home. I, I think uh, Marty hit the nail on the head uh, with a huge presence now in San Antonio. We just opened a pretty large office. So uh, very exciting times. Well, that's just an hour down the road. So I um, hope you make it out there. Love to connect up here in Texas. And of course, I'll be back in New York to see you, Marty. 
Yeah, and I'm down in San Antonio now probably every six weeks. So, Oh, fantastic. And we keep all the job postings on LinkedIn and on our website, so you can uh, find everything you need out there. Always looking for good people. Awesome. Awesome. And that's at, do I have it right, buckleup.com. You got it. Yes, sir. All right, buckleup.com. Check it out. Thanks, Dustin. Thanks, Marty. It's been a great time. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of MGA Founders Podcast, brought to you by Socotra, the policy administration system modern enough to power today's most innovative insurtechs. Visit Socotra.com forward slash MGA to see why more insurtechs trust Socotra than any other core platform. You'll find links to future episodes in today's show notes. Thank you for listening and make sure to subscribe and help us out with the review.